Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson vill jag så bra som mig. Karlsson, Karlsson, Karlsson scores! Yes, welcome everybody to another episode of Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by a guy who's hoping to one day have my yearly Charlie O'Connor interview streak be as iconic as Keith Yandel's game streak. I am your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me today for the next installment of the 32 Beats interview series, we've got a good one for the third year in a row. I am joined by the athletic beat writer for the Philadelphia Flyers, Charlie O'Connor. Welcome back to the show, Charlie. Yeah, Elon, thanks for having me. It's uh, always always a good time coming on this show. Nice. Yeah, I was just listening to our uh, interview from last year, and it was really great. It was a lot of fun, so I'm really looking forward to chatting with you again. Uh, the funny and sad thing is that in the last interview, we were talking about how much of a disaster the 2020-21 season turned out to be with Philly kind of falling apart in the second half they ended up sixth in the east they had only 58 points in 56 games uh turns out that was just an appetizer for what was in store as last season it went even worse they fell right to the basement of the metro this time 61 points in 82 games uh they were only ahead of montreal arizona and seattle in the league and the thing is when you look at the season as a whole they actually started decently strong they were eight four and two after a 2-1 ot win over calgary on november 16th but then they lost 10 in a row which wasn't even their longest losing streak of the season. So I guess just to start with the obvious general question, like what the heck went wrong last season? And is it as simple as just saying injuries and then we could just move on? Or, or was it more than just that? No, I definitely think it was more than just that. And that's not to, to minimize the impact of the injuries. They played a big role. You know, you lose uh, Ryan Ellis, who we'll get into later. You lose him after only a few games. You lose Sean Couturier. I mean, he was he was playing injured most of the season and then he got hurt and had to sit out but you know he's probably the flyers all-around best player ellis is the, probably their all-around best defenseman at least on paper yeah. and then they lost a bunch of other guys too you know kevin hayes wasn't himself all year um a lot of guys were getting banged up as well so yeah i mean injuries played a role but it, you can't just pin it on injuries. I really don't think that's fair. You, you talked about how they got off to a decent start, and that's true from a record standpoint. If you looked at their underlying numbers during that start, they weren't good. The Flyers were were not carrying play. They were winning a lot of games because Carter Hart got off to a good start because they were, you know, they were winning close games and whatnot. But there were there were obvious warning signs, and you know, to me, and I'm not saying this was the only problem because. As I said, injuries definitely impacted the team, uh, without a doubt. And then some some guys that you know they were hoping were going to bounce back from what they thought were just down years in 2020, 2021, ended up basically just repeating those years. So now we have to take a tough step back and say that might just be who they are. Um, but I do think a big part of it was a miscalculation on Chuck Fletcher's part with regards to the coaching staff. I think that played a really big role in the season, you know, playing out the way it did because, you know, there was legitimate tension in the second half, especially of the 2020, 21 season between Elaine Vigneault 
and the players. Uh, there was definitely a feeling that, you know, he didn't have their back, that the communication wasn't where it should be, um, that he was, you know, in some ways being unfair to certain guys, Carter Hart, namely. Um, and I think Chuck Fletcher looked at it that, you know, Elaine Vigneault did a really good job in year one in 2019, 2020, 2020, 21 didn't go the way they wanted it. But I think Fletcher looked at it as if I fix the roster and I, I improve the roster the way that, you know, a Vigneault team, like way he wants the team to play and whatnot, that the players will get over their issues with the coach because they'll go back and they'll be like, okay, I might not love the guy, but he's a good coach. He knows how to coach a system that works, which was proven in 2019, 2020, when the team was quite good. And that proved to be a gamble that just did not pay off because what ended up happening was, and, and the injuries play into this because I think like you never really got to see the defense that that Fletcher envisioned because Ellis never got to play. So then you had to move Justin Braun up to the top pair, which we can prove off. So there's an element of, you know, there's you wonder maybe it all could have worked out if injuries wouldn't have struck the team, but they did. And then what happened in my mind is that the players then remembered all the things that they had issues with when it came to Vino and the coaching staff. And then the thing just spiraled out of control. So, you know, in retrospect, I, I do think that, you know, if you could do a mulligan and you had the, the benefit of hindsight, you probably would have made a coaching change after the previous season, because in the end, it turned out that that relationship between players and coach just proved to be unsalvageable to the point where they had to fire Vino in early December in the middle of a five games and seven days stretch like they didn't want to do it, but the team clearly had just given up on the coach. So they didn't have a choice unless they wanted to watch the team lose like 14 nothing to to whoever they were playing later that week. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a miscalculation on on Chuck Fletcher's part. And you know, by the time they fired Vino, especially because they didn't immediately replace him with, you know, a big name outside hire who would command respect, the the chances of him salvaging the season were so slim. And then you add in the injuries as well. You know, it was just a mess of a situation where, you know, Mike Yo came in as the interim. He was an assistant coach before taking over the interim job. And I think Mike Yo did his best, but there was only so much he was going to be able to do, given the fact that by then, you know, Ellis had disappeared. Couturier was basically on the way out. Um, They got a few more games out of him before he sat down and then his season was over. Kevin Hayes was like, completely a shell of himself. So I don't know if that situation could have been salvaged by any coach, but Mike Yo probably wasn't the guy just be, and it's not no fault of Mike Yo's. It's more just like when you're an interim head coach, you're not really going to be able to come in with a new voice. Like you were part of the coaching staff that the team didn't particularly love. And I think they liked Mike Yo out of all of them. You know, he was the guy who really by the end, from what my understanding, he was doing most of the player, the coach to player communication, which is one of the reasons why they, they, they chose him as the interim, but the chances of him being able to pull like a Craig Berube was so slim that to me, this season was destroyed by injuries. It was destroyed by the mistaken decision to trust that Elaine Vigneault could fix this and could salvage, you know, the relationships that were burned the year before. And then just players not living up to, to reasonable expectations. So I would say those are the three things in my mind that, that that torpedo the season. And you can't ignore injuries, but it's also giving the rest of the organization a pass to say that the whole thing just can be blamed on injuries. 
Yeah, okay. I, I get what you're saying. And it'll be interesting to talk through some of these players and see if we still think they can turn things around. Because, you know, on paper, this looks like not a like fourth worst in the league team. Uh, as far as the coaching goes, they still haven't replaced. Like, it was just an interim coach, Mike Yo. So now they're in the market and there's some big names, right? Boudreaux, Barry Trotz. Uh, like, do you know who they're targeting? Or, like, or maybe even a more interesting question would be, like, what should they be targeting? Like, what should Philly be looking for their next coach? It's a really interesting question. Um, and a lot of it, I think, boils down to what they really want to do next. Um, the easy answer is just try to hire the best coach out there, which, I mean, they're trying to do. They're they're trying to push for Barry Trotz. I do not think Barry Trotz will ultimately choose to become the next coach of the Philadelphia Flyers, but I totally understand why the Flyers are giving it their best shot. You know, you get Barry Trotz, and this is the guy who took an Islanders team that had just lost John Tavares and turned them into, you know, a borderline contender. So I get, you know, hey, you get Barry Trotz, that changes your the entire complexion of your offseason. That said... You know, my viewpoint of the Flyers roster is that they they need a guy who like they need someone who can kind of find that balance between, um, you know, not completely like they, they need to, to institute structure within this team. This is not a team, especially the last two seasons that has been playing in any way, shape, or form, the right kind of hockey that leads to wins. They just make too many mistakes. They lose structure. They lose contain. They they can't. I mean, Mike Yo straight up told us that, like, we work on line changes. And it's like, if you're working on line changes, you got serious, serious structural problems with your, with your team. So they need a coach that can implement that kind of structure and has – brings the kind of credibility that allows players to buy in, but they also need someone who's a good communicator and they need someone who can develop the young talent that hopefully for the flyer's sake can move them into kind of a new era, especially after trading, you know, Claude Giroux, their longtime captain. So that's who they need. Now, whether that person is actually existing is another story. You know, they're, as I said, you know, they, they're, you know, very high on Barry Schrotz. They're certainly going to try to get him. They have a lot of money they can throw at him. But you look at the roster, you look at their, the lack of high-end young talent on the roster, and it's easy to understand why Barry Trotz might prefer to go to a team that's either closer with its vets or a team like Detroit that like has higher-end young talent than the Flyers. Like I take, you know, Marit Sider and Raymond over, you know, Joel Farabee and you know, whoever else. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, there's, it's very clear that one team has the superior young talent. Um, so I'm not exactly expecting Trotz to, to pick Philadelphia, but you know, beyond him, I mean, obviously there's been some smoke around John Tortorella who would certainly fit with the whole idea of let's try to turn this around quick. I think there's people in the organization that like, uh, like Montgomery, like Jim Montgomery, who you know was Dallas, Dallas's head coach, obviously had um, you know his issues that got him removed from that position. Um, now is the assistant with St. Louis, so I think there's some interest there. Um, you know, tonight there was just there was just released that Bruce Cassidy got fired. He's obviously a very good coach. So the Flyers will be. My understanding and everything I've heard is that the Flyers are pretty much interviewing everybody. You know, they've they've interviewed a lot of people. And they're casting a really wide net. Now, what that means for the process as a whole, I'm not quite sure. You know, if Barry Trotz calls them up and says, I want to be the coach of the Philadelphia Flyers, I think they're giving him the job. But I get the sense that the Flyers are casting a wider net in terms of the scope and number of interviews than most teams that have a vacancy are. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. 
Yeah, well, because it's a team that theoretically, like last year when we were talking, you were saying how they're still trying to build a contender. It's not like yeah. a team like Detroit, who was like this obvious rebuild. And like one big theme of our interview last year was you were talking about how Philly just desperately needed to have a good offseason and like get a top pairing defenseman to play with Provorov. And that was going to be like the goal. And, and clearly they did their best. <laughs> you know, Fletcher tried to address this issue. Like he traded Philippe Myers and uh, Nolan Patrick and got Ryan Ellis, who you like listed a bunch of players actually. You're like, maybe they could go go for seth jones or uh, i think you brought like hamilton then you also mentioned like ellis is like a potential target because it was before the trade and so they got him they also traded a first for rasmus ristolainen which is actually kind of funny because in the interview i was asking you who they should go for with the first and you were like uh they'll probably trade the first because they want to be aggressive in the offseason and so they did they got ristolainen they also signed keith yandel uh so like before we actually get into how these acquisitions played out like do you recall what your thoughts were on the offseason at the time like did you think that Chuck Fletcher did a good job with the defenseman that he acquired. I thought that the offseason was a mixed bag. And I actually still think the offseason kind of was a mixed bag looking back on it. Like I I really like the Ryan Ellis trade. And even though the Ryan Ellis trade has not worked out for them, I still like the thought process behind the Ryan Ellis trade. It's just that the guy got hurt and who knows yeah. what he's going to be or if he can come back. But I, I don't think that's a bad trade. I don't think that was a bad trade in the moment it was made. Obviously, in the end, general managers are going to be judged on the results, the tangible results. And the tangible result is that Ryan Ellis played four games. So not a great trade, especially in the sense that you're picking up a guy who's in his 30s and has multiple years left on a contract that suddenly looks very scary because he basically didn't play last year. But I, I think that trade in the moment, I liked a lot. The rest versus the line and trade, I did not like it all. I still don't like it at all. Um, the swap of Jake Voracek for Cam Atkinson, I thought that was a good swap. I thought that made sense. I think that trade worked out for both teams. So I think that was perfectly fine. Um, a lot of the depth guys, they added, you know, uh, Nate Thompson, not, not great. Um, Keith Yandel, the Yandel one was interesting to me because I, I, I thought they could squeeze another year of usefulness out of him. And it turned out that he was completely finished. Um, I mean, he, there's, I, I I don't think I'm exaggerating by saying I think Keith Yandel was the worst defenseman in the NHL last year. Uh, he oh, wow. was so bad. Um, his underlying numbers, his basic stats. I mean, look at his plus minus for God's sakes. Like he was awful. And as someone who watched him every night, like the numbers told the tale. He was really that bad. And I thought they could squeeze a little bit more out of it. And I think maybe they could have, possibly squeezed more out of him had Ellis not gotten hurt because the way that the way that Yandel the previous year his final year in Florida why he was kind of able to hang on and be fairly useful and play every single game for a good Florida team is that they sheltered him like crazy like he got like almost no defensive zone starts. He was almost always facing off against bottom sixers and, and Joel Quenville was able to shelter him. And I think the flyers had similar aspirations, but once you lose Ryan Ellis, suddenly everyone kind of has to go up a level and it becomes significantly harder to shelter the heck out of Keith Yandel when your first pair is Ivan Provorov and Justin Braun versus when your first pair is Ivan Provorov and Ryan Ellis. You just don't have that same trust in your top pair to take on all the tough minutes that you would have if you had a Ryan Ellis up there on the right side. So it's tough to say if they maybe could have replicated what Florida was able to do the previous year to make Yandel semi-useful as like the number six. 
But what I do know is that what ended up happening is that Yandel ended up being really bad, uh, really, really bad. So, yeah. you know, I came out of last season, last offseason thinking the Flyers had an okay, like a mixed bag offseason. I still think they had a mixed bag offseason. It's just that the thing that really killed them from an offseason standpoint is that their best move on paper, they got nothing out of because Ryan Ellis basically never played. Yeah, and it was like you ba- literally said what they need is a top-pairing defenseman, and they got it, and then they didn't. That was so. what it all hinged on. That was that was the And that was one of the reasons why I disliked the rest of the line and trade as much as I did because it was like, okay, you're trading. And, and the funny thing is this is actually how it played out. You're trading for Ryan Ellis, who, I mean, I am a – Big Ryan Ellis fan. I was super excited to watch him play this year. It was a real bummer that uh, that I couldn't watch him, you know, up close because I've always been a fan of his game dating back to Nashville. Um, that said, he gets hurt. He's he tends to be a guy who's going to miss some games. And my thing going into the offseason was that I wanted the Flyers to try to get like two legitimately really good defensemen. And I think they went into the offseason with the same plan. The problem is, is that they think Rasmus Ristolainen is a legitimately good defenseman, and he's not. So what ended up happening was you trade for Ryan Ellis. You're like, okay, Ryan Ellis is our top pair defense, but we're sticking him next to Provorov. Then you trade for Rasmus Ristolainen, and you say, okay, Rasmus Ristolainen, we're sticking him next to Sanheim because Travis Sanheim is a talented puck-moving defenseman, and we think we need a physical complement because he's not the most physical guy. And I get that. I, I actually understand that element of the Rasmus Ristolainen trade. That said, we've seen what Rasmus Ristolainen can't do, and that is be a first-pair defenseman because Buffalo tried it for years, and he was terrible in that role. So what happened was when Ellis got hurt, on some level, they must have realized that because they never really promoted Ristolainen off the second pair. They kept him with Sanheim pretty much all year. And to spend a first-round pick on a guy who you know can't be a first-pair defenseman even in a pinch? Like, that made no sense. It was such a poor allocation of assets because they had this feeling that they desperately needed this physical element that very few players on the back end bring, and and brings it, so he checked that box. But what ended up happening was because they knew on some level that Ristolainen couldn't actually be a first-pair defenseman, which, like, if you're trading, a guy, trading for a guy to be a second-pair defenseman, you – implicitly you would think that they would believe that in a pinch, he could be a first pair guy, but they, they knew he couldn't. So they moved Braun up to the first pair and Justin Braunwell, a useful defenseman is not a first pair defenseman either. He's a third pair defenseman. So suddenly you had Ivan Provorov with a third pair defenseman. And then that pair was a disaster. So the wrist and trade in retrospect, I mean, in the moment I was very critical of it, but in retrospect, the Ellis injury only served to highlight the limitations of Rasmussen and the the flawed logic behind that trade in the first place. Yeah, and now watch like Isaac Rosen, who the Sabers took with that pick, end up being like a superstar to just make it uh, <laughs> even worse. So maybe they could be cheering against him. Uh, okay, like I guess we have to move on from the defense, but it is interesting. I want to get your take quickly on Ellis in terms of like you know we're a fantasy podcast, we're trying to project like who who people should be picking, and like Ellis, like you said, only four games worth mentioning. He had five points in those four games. Like he was looking <laughs> pretty good. Uh, so like now going into next season, from what I read, he's like planning on being healthy. Obviously, he planned on being healthy like this season 
season and the season before, and both of those seasons uh, didn't work out for him. But like, assuming say he's healthy at the age of 31 and after missing all this time, do you think he still has it in him to be like a high impact guy? You know, like he used to get like uh, six, he either would get like a 60 point pace or a 40 point pace in Nashville alternating per seasons. Do you think he still has that high end ability to make an impact like that in Philly? I, I've always been a believer in Ryan Ellis, the player. I think he's a very good player. And if he comes back healthy, yes, absolutely. The thing is, is that no one, and I mean this, this isn't just a media thing. No one really knows if he's going to come back healthy. And I, I'll, I'll go back to kind of Chuck Fletcher's end of season press conference. So the way that the the postseason pressers ended up working is they had their game 82, their season ended, thank God. Um, and then we talked to all the players and in exit interviews the next day on a Saturday. And we had no idea if we were going to get Ryan Ellis. We hadn't spoke to Ryan Ellis on the record in months. Well, Ellis was there and Ellis was willing to talk to us. It was the first time he was really open about the specifics of his injury and, you know, his relationship with the organization and the fact that he wanted to figure out a way to get, to get this to work. And he said very clearly that he thinks they have an action plan. He thinks they have a real recovery plan that doesn't involve surgery that will allow him to be ready for camp next year and be back to the player that he wants to be, that it was a pelvic injury. It was a multi-layered pelvic injury, and they determined what they believe to be a, you know, a medical plan that will allow him to return to action. So that was what we got from, from Ellis. And that was, you know, it was good news. Obviously the flyers needed some good news after the season they just had. And having Ellis be willing to to go out there and be like, I want to be here. I want to figure out a way to make this work. I'm on the same page with the Flyers doctors. That was big. But then a couple of days later, Chuck Fletcher spoke at the, you know, as to his like end of season press conference. And I asked Fletcher, basically, are you entering the offseason and formulating your offseason plan? operating under the assumption that you will be getting a healthy and fully effective Ryan Ellis for game one of next season, or are you considering him to be kind of, you know, a question mark, you know, to the point where you might have to go out and get another defenseman because we've seen that Ivan Provorov needs more help than Justin Braun can provide. So, and he, they clearly don't think that Rasmus lining can be a top pair of right-handed shot defensemen. So if you don't, if you're questioning whether Ryan Ellis isn't going to be ready or isn't going to be the Ryan Ellis from Nashville, then you probably have to look at making that improvement or at least addressing that hole to some degree. And Fletcher's answer was very interesting to me. And basically what Fletcher said was that, well, He's on this recovery plan. This was back in early May. So we're about a month later at this point. He said, well, Ellis is on this recovery plan. We believe it's the right recovery plan, but we're going to have a better understanding by the end of June, whether the recovery plan is working. And that matches up perfectly with when the active part of the offseason starts anyway. So that will be the final deciding factor as to whether, you know, as to kind of what we do on the back end, or if we just kind of say, okay, well, we're getting Ellis back and the back end is the back end. That tells me that they don't know if this is going to work. They're hoping it's going to work. They think that, you know, this is probably the most clarity they have on the injury that they've had in a long time, but they don't know for sure. And that uncertainty, you know, you can't ignore that. I mean, obviously, you know, one thing I will say from a fantasy perspective is that if you see the Flyers don't, they don't do anything in the offseason to address their defense beyond maybe signing another third pair defenseman, then you can say that, well, they probably have confidence that Ryan Ellis is, is 
the the recovery's working and he'll be back. But if they go out and they get another right-handed shot, like if they and even if they don't, but like they're rumored, like let's say they're rumored, heavily rumored to be like in on the pursuit for like Chris Letang on like a short-term deal, then you can probably assume that the Ryan Ellis thing is not resolved. So that'll be our hint. So I would keep an eye on what the Flyers are doing in the offseason with regards to defense and what they're rumored to be looking at, because that should say a lot in terms of how close and how confident they are about Ryan Ellis being ready for game one in 2022-2023. Yeah. Okay. So that'll be really fun to watch. And like now we have this like little cheat code of like how to tell him what his uh, <laughs> status is. Uh, the thing is like with Ellis out and like now Ivan Provorov, like once again, having taken a step back in his offensive contributions, he only had 31 points in 79 games. It's kind of like there's no defensemen currently on the team that are like exciting from a fantasy perspective, I guess, except for maybe a uh, 21-year-old Cam York, who took over the top power play job soon after he came up in January uh, until he another injury by the way and we'll have a lot of players all bring up like they were doing okay and then he got injured but yeah he suffered a hairline fracture of his foot that ended his season on april 12th um is it fair to say at this point barring more injuries that like first of all provorov's like 40 plus point upside is a thing of the past now cam york is going to take that power play spot ahead of provorov and it's just between like york and ellis like for who's going to be manning the top power play and getting those like more offensive minutes next season I mean, it's tough to say because we don't know what the status of Ellis is. I will say that as long as Cam York is on this team, he's going to get power play time. They really like Cam York, not just in terms of they like him as a player, which they do. You know, he was Chuck Fletcher's first draft pick as general manager of the Flyers. They're very high on Cam York. And also they like him from a power play standpoint because he's more of a decisive distributor, which is, I believe, what they organizationally want in terms of their defenseman up at the point on power play one. So I think Cam York, Cam York is your power play one defenseman, assuming he makes the team, which I, I'm pretty sure he will. Um, I think he's pretty much penciled in as the the third pair left-handed defenseman, assuming that both Provorov and Sanheim survive the offseason. Um, that said, you know, if, if Ellis doesn't come back, Provorov could still end up on power play two. Like that's possible. And he's had good scoring seasons on power play two. Um, so I'm not, I'm not ruling out the possibility of Provorov being a, a useful fantasy player. That said, I mean, I don't think it's a guarantee that Ivan Provorov is on this team next year. So, you know, there's, oh. there's question marks here with regards to like, who's going to be there and Provorov. I mean, I'm not saying that Provorov is definitely going to get traded, but I don't think it's been ruled out. And that's something certainly that's worth looking at because I mean, Provorov is a guy where, you know, if the Flyers want to aggressively retool their roster, as they said they're going to, he's a guy that's going to have value. He's a big minutes defenseman who's played on the top pair for years, and they don't have a lot of cap space. So if you're going to want to make some moves, you got to move some guys out and you got to swap some guys. And Provorov might be a guy who they potentially look to as a uh, you know potential hockey trade type option guy and guy. Wow, that would be just wow! I didn't even consider that. Like, like uh, it's just hard to imagine this team if like Ellis doesn't come back and now Provorov's gone. I mean, hopefully they get someone good back in return. In that case, that's for sure. Uh, there, I mean, I do have a guy named uh, Egor Zamula in my dynasty league, so I'd be happy for you to tell me that he's going to be the next like big star on the team. He he was pretty impressive, honestly, in his uh, his time near the end of the year when they uh, they called him up. His underlying numbers were actually fantastic. Uh, Zamul is interesting, though. I don't know if he's ever going to be a big offense producer. 
Um, but he's interesting to the Flyers mix because he like they tried Cam York on the right side. He's Cam York is a left-handed shooting defense. They tried him on the right side with Provorov, and the pairing wasn't bad. But York made it abundantly clear, both to the media and my understanding is privately as well, that he doesn't like playing the right side. He's a, he sees himself as a left-handed shooting defenseman. Which again, this is part of the reason why the idea of moving Provorov isn't totally insane because. Right now, you've got Provorov, Sanheim, and York on the left side. Sanheim was a better defensive than Provorov this year. Like, that's that's an objective fact. He was better. He won the team award for best defenseman. He was a better defensive than Provorov. And if you think that Travis Sanheim potentially could be a top pair defenseman, he's pretty much been used as a three his entire career. And suddenly, it's like, all right, well, you move him up. You put him with a healthy Ellis, hopefully. Cam York is your second pair defenseman. And that's interesting on that front. And then going back to Zamula, Zamula actually has expressed comfort on the right side. So he's interesting because even though he's a lefty shooting defenseman, he might be able to play the right side. He might be the guy who, you know, fits in in some way because he can be a right-handed shooting defensively, even though he actually shoots left. So Zamula is interesting. The thing with Zamula that, that comes up with him a lot, and this is, you know, this isn't wrong. This is true. He is having real problems putting on weight and muscle. Like he is a string bean. He's like six foot three, but he's like 180 and he looks it. And the big reason why they hesitate to call him up in comparison to York, who isn't the biggest guy in the world either, but he's much more solidly built. Their concern with Zamul was that if we called him up, we were going to watch him get injured that he was going to get crushed by somebody. He was going to like shatter his collarbone or something. He was going to get hurt. And they're looking at this as a really big off season for Zamula um, in terms of finally building up his muscle and building up his weight to the point where they feel comfortable using him in the NHL. So Zamula is interesting. I like him as a prospect. I legitimately do. And the right-handed shoot, the right-handed side aspect of it, like the ability for him to play the right side that adds an element that might make it easier for them to fit him in. I, you know, aside from the idea, like he could only play the left, like York seems to only like to play the left, um, but he needs to bulk up or else I'm not sure the organization is going to give him that shot. So definitely a worthwhile long-term prospect to hold on to, but I, I'm not sure if he has significant offensive upside, he might be more of like a fancy stat kind of defenseman than a, uh, than a real point producer that's going to help you a ton of fantasy. But from a potential standpoint, you know, he's, he's an intriguing guy. So, uh, so definitely somebody to keep an eye on. Cool. Maybe I'll follow him on Instagram and see what kinds of meals he's tweeting about <laughs> eating. If he's bulking up that way. All right. So I definitely think we've done a great job covering the D. So let's get to the forwards and then the goalies. Uh, we'll be back in just a sec. All right, we are back. And yeah, now let's talk about some of the Philly forwards. Obviously, they lost their big star. Like you said, Claude Giroux is gone. I guess theoretically, you never see this happen, but like theoretically, if they like Claude Giroux, if Giroux likes Philly, like he's an UFA now, he could always come back. I'd imagine that's probably not on the table and Giroux's going to want to go to a team that has a you know better shot at a championship soon. Um, I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility. I do get the sense that there are people in the organization that kind of are ready just to sort of move on. You know, you, you, you made the decision to trade your captain, you're restructuring the leadership core that bringing drew back might be counterproductive. I don't necessarily agree with that, but I'm just saying that's the thought process that they have, um, that this team just needs to be shaken up and bringing back Giroux is just more of the same. Um, that said, you know, he's still a really good player. 
And he obviously still loves Philadelphia. I mean, it killed him to, to get traded the first time, uh, even though he was the one who waived his no movement clause. Eventually, I think he always envisioned, you know, finishing out his career in Philadelphia and, and winning a cup and, and being the one who brought it, brought it back to Philadelphia. So I, I don't think Giroux would, would potentially rule it out. I just don't know how much interest necessarily the flyers would have. Plus flyers don't have a lot of cap space, as I said. Right. So mm-hmm. Giroux would have to take a pretty big pay cut. And I think that was something that they, they discussed in the past, but they discussed that with the assumption that the team was going to be good. And it very clearly isn't right now. So it's like, is Drew really going to like take a pay cut to four and a half million dollars a year to be on this Flyers team? Like I wouldn't, if I were him, let me put it that way. I would do it maybe to be on Florida. Like, sure. I'll try to chase down a cup with a real good team and, you know, take a contract that's less than my on ice value, but to do it for the Flyers seems like a little bit of a stretch uh, just from a logical standpoint, but no, it could happen. I, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of them, of them coming swinging back around on Drew and, I'm sure it's something that the two sides talked about before the trade, but um, if I had to bet, I would say I, I don't think he comes back. All right, so then we have to try to figure out who is like the leading star player on the team. In terms of total points last season, it was Travis Konechny, but if you go by pace, it was the player they acquired in the offseason that you mentioned. They traded Jacob Voracek to get Cam Atkinson from Columbus. I'm really interested to get your take on Atkinson because he had like kind of a strange season. Like He started strong. He had six goals and one assist in his first five games, just like out of the gate, explosive. Then he went super quiet for like, say, I don't know, a month and a half. Then all of a sudden, he had this like long stretch in the middle of the season where he was all over the score sheet every game playing big minutes taking like a ton of shots we're seeing like seven shot games like like really exciting games uh getting goals and or assists like almost every game then like starting on march 29th i noticed i was just looking at the game log he went quiet once again he went pointless in seven games before like his his fellow cam he also suffered an lbi and then well i mean the cam york didn't suffer an lbi but also like ended up suffering an injury and then missing the rest of the season uh so in the end Atkinson ends up with 23 goals and 50 points in 73 games as a 32 year old in his first season with Philly, which is which is solid. But like we saw stretches where he looked like a, like a superstar on the score sheet. So, do you, is there any rhyme or reason to the various hot and cold stretches throughout the season, or do you think he's just like a streaky guy and this is what we should expect from him next year as well? No, there's definitely rhyme or reason. I mean, to be clear, he's a goal scorer. All goal scorers are streaky. I mean, unless you're Alex Ovechkin or Austin right. Matthews. Like, actually, I'm just getting deja vu that you said the exact same thing about JVR when I asked you about him last year. Yep. So, yeah. I mean, it's one of my favorite things because I constantly am defending guys like this when people get angry that they're not scoring. It's like you want a goal scorer, and then you get angry when a goal scorer does what every goal scorer does. They're streaky. If the Flyers got Patrick Line, he'd do the same thing. So, it's 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 a refrain I I echo constantly both on podcasts and on social media, because I don't think fans truly understand a lot of times what they're actually asking for. Um, But, but going back to Atkinson. So part of it is that he's, he's a goal scorer. He's going to be streaky. That's just part and parcel of, of, of the job and kind of what happens with those guys, unless they're super elite. That said, Atkinson starting in March was playing through multiple injuries. And that's why his production fell off a cliff at the end of the year. Like it's a, you, it really became obvious in his underlying numbers because around the start to the midpoint of March, like he was very clearly for the first, you know, whatever, first five months of the year, he was solidly a, a positive impact play driver. You know, he was pushing play in the right direction in addition to scoring really well. I remember comparing his numbers to Jake Voracek's 
you know, from a, from an underlying standpoint, looking at his like RAPM model from uh, from evolving hockey, and even just his raw play driving totals, his, his spectacles for his Corsi four, and they were better than Voracek's by a significant amount. Well, around March, Atkinson started playing. He started getting hurt, and not just in one area; like he was banged up in multiple areas, and it dramatically impacted the quality of his play to the point where. He we did an interview with him. I believe it was in like late March. It was right after the trade deadline. And someone straight up asked him, like, are you injured? Are you playing hurt? And he just had this big grin on his face. And he's like, I'm good. And then just <laughs> walked away. And it was like, OK, we know you're hurt. Um, so I think that his his end of season cold streak was less the case of you know him legitimately struggling and more the case of like, at that point, especially after the Claude Giroux trade, he was probably the Flyers' best player, and he felt like he had to keep playing, even though he probably shouldn't have kept playing because he wasn't that effective anymore. And then finally, I believe it was in the Washington game in mid-April, he got banged up again, and that was finally the last straw. Where he he like he told us in his exit interview, he was like, "Look, like if we were in a playoff race, I probably would have tried my best to tough it out, but I was watching tape of myself and." I shouldn't have been out there. Like I, I add, add another injury to all the other ones I had. And it was like, I'm not helping the team anymore. And that's why he eventually sat himself down. It was less that like he had one serious injury and more was just an accumulation of everything. So I wouldn't put too much stock into that cold streak at the end of the year, aside from the fact that just like he's 32 and he's small. So you might just have to assume he's going to get banged up because that's what happens when you're older and not the biggest guy in the world. But it certainly wasn't a case of like his game completely fell apart and he's never going to be the same. Like he just was playing through injuries that he probably shouldn't have been playing through. And that's why his production fell off. Right. So, okay. I, I feel like then that makes him an interesting guy to look at for next season, right? At least to start the year. Well, well, if he comes in healthy, I think a lot of people, you know, do their drafts expecting, or, you know, you look at like last year's point totals and kind of expect something similar. And here, here's a guy who was like totally outperforming his final numbers until, you know, he got hurt, it sounds like. So, uh, by the way, another forward like Atkinson, whose overall numbers maybe don't tell the whole story is Joel Farabee, who similarly like started hot. He had a goal and an assist in each of his first three games to start the year. Then he went a whole 14 games with only one goal and no assists. Then he went on a run of 25 points in 31 games. And then he turned into a ghost at the end of the season, two goals in 15 games. So just totally like a roller coaster. He's either like producing at almost a point per game or he's doing absolutely nothing. So kind of the same question as with Atkinson. Like, is was there an injury behind his inconsistency or was this just more a young player going through the, I don't know, the rigors of a season? It's a little bit of both. Um, I do think that there are some extenuating circumstances that probably need to be taken into, into account with Farabee. That said, I do think a lot of it also was just the inconsistencies of being a young player. Uh, I like Farabee a lot. I don't necessarily think he's going to be a star, but I think he will eventually top out as like a good like 50 to 60 point winger. Um, so I, 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 am a, I am a Joel Farabee fan. To go through his season, um, there, there were two things that I can call extenuating circumstances. The first was that he got hurt in, I want to say, like early December, but it might have been November. He had a, a shoulder injury, which was, I believe it was an AC sprain. 
And it was supposed to keep him out for four to six weeks. He came back in like two and a half weeks, which was way too soon. And I think that negatively impacted the quality of his play. I don't think that he was fully ready to come back. I think he rushed back. And then he got hurt again. Uh, he basically had a re-injury, the same same shoulder, same problem. And that was a mistake on the Flyers' part. Like they should not have, have allowed him to come back as soon as he did. I think they should have given him more time to recuperate. So I think that might have messed him up in the middle of the season to a degree. Um, then obviously, as you said, he got going again. Um, but I think that was a bit of a problem there. Um, then in, in late March, after they traded Giroux, they tried Faraby out at center, which was an interesting experiment. They've always liked his two-way acumen and they were, they basically decided, you know, we just traded Claude Giroux. Couturier is out for the rest of the year. Scott Lawton, I believe was still recovering from a concussion. They really didn't have that many centers anyway. And I think they just decided, you know what? Faraby has the skill set that maybe could make him into a viable NHL center. So let's give it a look. The season's over anyway, essentially. And at first, he was scoring pretty well in the middle. His underlying numbers weren't great. So the two-way play wasn't really there down the middle, which made sense. But eventually, I do wonder if that experiment might have messed with his head a little bit. Um, because as you said, he he closed out the season very, very weak from a scoring standpoint. And they eventually did move him back to wing. But I just wonder if it, it just it, the whole experiment might have had a negative short-term impact on his confidence and sort of on what he was trying to do on the ice. Cause maybe he still had some of the, the coaching that he was getting when he was playing the middle, you know, even when he moved back to wing and things like that. So that extenuating circumstance, I think can at least partially explain what happened at the end of the year with therapy, but it's also just the fact that he's a young player and he's not, I don't think what he's, I don't think he's what he's going to be yet. And I think this year put him on a bad team, like the flyers were, and you're going to have some inconsistencies on that front. I think that's, that's what therapy ran into this year. Yeah. It'll be fun to see what he can do with a full season. Let's say playing with like a Sean Couturier who I'm going to admit to you when I started prepping for this interview, I was like halfway through, like com- coming up with, you know, which players want to ask you about that. I was like, Oh yeah, Sean Couturier is still on this team. <laughs> Cause he, he just sort of, yeah, he had that like start of the year, then he got injured and then he was kind of gone. And uh, obviously that's like a huge loss to the team. He was like, like you mentioned earlier, like they're probably their top player. Uh, he actually was kind of like not doing so well, but I guess you already explained that, that he was even injured before he decided to sit out. He only had 17 points in 29 games. So do you have an update on Couturier? And like, do we expect him to be back healthy? And, and once he's back, can we go back to expecting the, you know, old reliable 75 point pace uh, Couturier back next season? So Couturier, if you're talking about like in comparison to someone like Ryan Ellis, who I am legitimately concerned about his ability to come back. I'm pretty confident that Kateri will be back in close to, if not complete full form. He was actually practicing with the team by the end of the season. He was skating. You know, I wonder if the team was actually doing well, if he might've tried to come back for the last little bit. Um, But it was the the safe move. Like you're coming off back surgery. You might as well play it as safe as possible. Um, But I got the sense that Couturier's recovery was going really well. He thinks he can have a basically normal offseason. He's getting close to be, this was back in May. He was getting close to being like fully cleared essentially. So I think he's going to have a strong offseason. Now the, the concern with Couturier is that it's a back injury. Back injuries are scary. They're scary for literally anyone in existence, but they're especially scary for professional athletes because, uh, you know, 
you know, you're skating, you're using your back for everything. It can slow you down. It can make you a less effective player. That said, they have confidence he's going to be back. And they have confidence that he's going to be the Sean Gattari of old. And I know, knowing what I know about his work ethic, I think he's going to do everything he can to, to make sure that he's back to as close to his full self as he possibly can be. That said, if you're looking at this purely from a fantasy standpoint, he could come back and be Sean Gattari from a true talent standpoint, the exact same guy. It's going to hurt him not having Claude Giroux. Like that is absolutely going to hurt him from a point production standpoint because he spent a lot of time with Claude Drew at five on five. They had really good chemistry. He spent a lot of time with them on the power play. Claude Drew was a very good power play quarterback. Now, maybe this changes if the Flyers go out and, you know, get like a Johnny Goudreau in free agency and they just use Goudreau as the new Giroux, then, sure. then maybe that's it's fine and there's no difference. But if if Couturier's wingers are suddenly, you know, Joel Farabee and Travis Konechny, like they're both good players. Neither of them are Claude Giroux. So I don't know if Couturier could come back and still be Sean Couturier, but also not be the Couturier from a fantasy standpoint that people are necessarily expecting because the impact of Giroux, I think, will hurt him. The right, loss yeah, of Giroux like, will hurt him. Yeah, losing the big piece on the power play also for all those power play points he was getting. Uh, and I guess, yeah, so to finish up with all of their like star players before we get to the younger guys, I guess Travis Konechny is the last piece here who unfortunately took a step back from that. Mon- like he two seasons ago, he had that monster 76 point pace breakout in 2019-20. And then last year he fell. And then this year he fell to 52 points in 79 games, which was still good enough to lead the team in points. It was interesting listening back to our interview because uh, you said that Konechny will probably land in between like the 75-ish and 50 55-ish point pace guy. And the reason you cited was that his 11% shooting percentage in 2020-21 was maybe yeah, a bit low. It's probably that. more of like, yeah. So unfortunately, yes, a bad luck for him because it turned out that that would have been really nice this year because he fell like really far down to a 7.3 shooting percentage this year. So do you think this was a lot of like a really bad puck luck thing or do we have to like reassess like what kind of shooter this guy is? I don't think he's a 7.3% shooter. I think you have to reassess a bit because maybe we shouldn't be expecting him to bounce all the way back to 14. Um, you know, I thought that maybe he was just a legitimate plus shooter because he held it for three straight years. He passed the eye test for me. And I thought that, you know, the, the 11% year maybe was a little unlucky. Then you throw me a 7% year. And now suddenly I'm thinking maybe you really are an 11% true talent shooter. Mm -hmm. I don't think you're a 7% true talent shooter, but you might be an 11% guy. And maybe those years at 14, maybe they were the, the anomaly. I mean, it's very possible for guys that have multiple years of having, you know, played above their true talent level. And that might've been the case with Konechny. Um, Konechny is just such a tough, tough nut to crack though, because the, the talent is there. You know, you can see he's one of the few guys the Flyers still have now with Giroux gone that like when he's really, really on can legitimately take over a game. Um, that said, it doesn't seem like he's going to be the guy who was nearly point per game in 2019, 2020. It looks like that might have been like a little bit of a mirage or maybe just a career year, maybe is the better way to put it. I just did a, a long like review of his season and my view of connect me is basically that he's, he's probably, you know, on a really good team. He's probably like somewhere between like their fourth and seventh best forward. Like he's probably 
a good a good second liner or a great third liner on like a Tampa, you know, on a team that's legitimately cup contending. The problem is, is that the Flyers need him to be their second best forward. And he's just not going to be that. Like, I just don't think he's that good. He's not that consistent. He's not that impactful. So the Flyers really have two, they have two possible ways they could approach this. Approach number one is go out and get guys that allow you to put Konechny in his more comfortable place, let him be a second liner and a darn good one at that. Or you try to move him in a deal that gets you one of those guys that Konechny clearly isn't, but they're trying to pretend he is because they don't have anybody better. And it's going to be very interesting. I've heard that all things being equal, they'd like to find a way to make it work with connect because they really like him as a person. They think he has untapped potential and they think they can crack it. They think they can get him back to where he was. So I don't think they want to move him, but I wouldn't rule it out because they know they need high end players. And I don't think Travis connect at his core is a high end for, I think he's a good forward, but I don't think he's a high-end forward. And I think the last two years, in my mind, have shown that to me. Because he's, I mean, the guy's 25. Like, this is, at some point, you got to stop looking at these guys as if they're young players. And you got to start looking at them as if they're in their prime. And this is kind of what they are. Not to say that, you know, there aren't the occasional Josh Bailey breakouts where a guy out of nowhere in his late 20s becomes a really good player. But, like, it doesn't happen as often as you think. And... Connecting just strikes me as a good second liner. And I'd love to see him on a Flyers team where he could just be a good second liner, but it's not this Flyers team. So they either need to really beef up their forward core to let him play the role he's born to play, or they need to figure out if they might be able to flip him and turn him into a guy who can be what they desperately need. Interesting. Yeah. So maybe they use him if, if they decide they want to keep Provorov, maybe they could use him to get like that other defenseman or we'll have to see what they do. So I'm interested now I'm looking at the rest of the forwards. They do have a couple like high pedigree guys, at least at one point that could potentially have had people thinking that they would one day be the type of player you're talking about that maybe they want connecting to be. I'm talking about uh, Morgan Frost and Owen Tippett, two guys who were, you know, picked in the first round uh, back in 2017. Frost this year had a pretty unremarkable rookie season. He ended up with 16 points in 55 games, averaged just under 14 minutes of time on ice per game. Tippett was putting up similar numbers as a Panther, 14 points in 42 games. Then he had seven points in 21 games with Philly. They actually played on a line together at the end of the season for a bit, along with 23-year-old Noah Cates, who actually had a bigger impact than both of them. Uh, he had a nice run there at the end, nine points in 16 games after his call-up. But of course, you know, Frost and Tippett are, like I said, the former first-round picks, both from 2017. I'm curious to get your take on what you saw from those two guys and if either strikes you as having, like, I don't know, at the least, like, I don't know, top six, top power play, like, potential in, in their futures. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I would say, I mean, look, there's a possibility that both of them could pan out to the degree the Flyers are hoping they're, they're going to pan out. You, you can never rule out uh, surprising outcomes for, for young players. That said, based on what I saw last year, I think that Tippett has a higher likelihood of turning into that guy than Frost. Tippett, after the trade to Philadelphia, Tippett was a really interesting guy to watch in Philly because obviously it didn't seem like it was working in Florida. Um, it seemed like he'd fallen down the depth chart. He got sent down to the AHL. It just, I mean, they're just such a deep team. It just seemed like, you know, he he didn't really work with Huberdo this year. So that pushed him out of the top nine. And you're not going to use a guy like that on the fourth line. So he got pushed out. In Philadelphia, Tippett 
racked up the scoring chances. I mean, he was constantly creating chances. He just wasn't finishing on them. And it's a very weird thing because that was always his strength. Like his strength as a prospect. I remember watching tape of him going into the 2017 draft because it was before I knew the Flyers were jumping up from 13 too. So I thought Tippa might be an option at 13. And I watched tape of him and that guy could wire the puck. I mean, this was this was a pure finisher. And the fact that his biggest issue with the Flyers and really in the NHL as a whole has been finishing. Not saying he's destined to fix it. Some guys, they just can't figure out how to finish at the NHL level. But it's a weird thing when the guy's biggest weakness was once his biggest strength, because it leads you to believe that he might be able to tap back into that. And if he can, there's a goal score here. Like there's a 25 to 30 goal score here. And the Flyers are in a position where they can give a guy like that the opportunity. To, to play on the top power play unit, to get top six minutes, to put him with a Sean Gouturier or something and see what you get out of them. Because why the heck not? You're not that good. You might as well see what you get out of these kids. So tip it to me is interesting, not because I, I'm certain that they're going to be able to pull out of him what you know the, the Panthers obviously hope when they took him in the first round. Um, but I think there's a, a really plausible path to him potentially finding his upside. Frost, on the other hand, He's just tough because there are some reasons for you to be optimistic about him. He basically had an entire year of development screwed up because he separated his shoulder. That was the 2020-21 season. Um, He flashes town. He has offensive ability, but he just hasn't been able to put it together. And it's tough because, you know, he looked very underwhelming this past year. He had some good games. There were some moments where he looked like he was building confidence, but he just was very underwhelming in 2021, 22. And I almost wonder if his skill set is better served for the wing than it is for center with the exception of the fact that I don't know if he's going to be able to consistently help his team break out at wing like break out of the defensive zone because he's not the best at dealing with contact up at the top, like up along the boards. And if you're a winger, you kind of have to be able to do that on breakouts. And you have to be able to eat hits to be able to, to redirect pucks out of the zone and hopefully, you know, potentially pass the puck back down to your center so that he can get on a, on a clean breakout. So it, it's a weird situation where I don't know if he's great, great fit at center at the NHL level, because, I don't know if he's got like the skill to be holding the puck all the time, but I also don't know if he's a great fit at wing either. So I'm, I'd love to see Morgan Frost figure it out. He does show flashes. The talent is there. The power play ability in theory is there. I don't know if he's ever like, he just strikes me as a guy where he was never going to be a great two way forward. So he was going to have, he was going to crack, make it in the NHL. He was going to have to make it as a scorer. And I don't know if the scoring ability is going to translate enough for him to overcome the fact that he's not a particularly good two-way player. So he's in a weird spot. But like, as I said, the Flyers probably aren't going to be that good next year. So if you keep Morgan Frost this offseason and you don't trade him in some sort of aggressive retool deal, then obviously you give the guy a shot and you put him in opportunities to succeed because what have you got to lose? He's still young. You still want to be able to squeeze, you know, a good player, a good second line center, maybe out of him, uh, And that would obviously help the Flyers out a lot. But I was way more 
I'm way more optimistic about Owen Tippett's potential just because it strikes me as a more plausible path to reaching it than I am about Morgan Frost, who to me was very disappointing last year on the whole. Yeah. Uh, it's too bad that, you know, they also had that other 2017 pick Nolan Patrick and we know that didn't work out. So it wasn't a I great draft for the, the Flyers. Yeah. Well, hopefully the Florida Panthers draft pick will turn out to be their best pick from that draft. Uh, and I guess since I brought him up, what is the deal with Noah Cates? Like I actually was, when I was listening back, it was funny. I was asking you a similar question last season about a guy named Wade Allison. In last year's interview, I was talking about this guy, Wade Allison, who came in at the end of the season, made a big impact. And then I was like, oh, is this a guy that like we should be watching out for? And you correctly predicted that we shouldn't read much into it. And, and you were right. Like he only got one game with the big club in 2021-22. But now it's like, I don't know, uh, Noah Cates' turn to have come in at the end of the season, make an impact, and now have me wondering, is this guy someone who's going to stick with the team and maybe be something next year? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, Cates was really, really impressive. Um, he obviously, you know, they signed him out of uh, you know Minnesota Duluth after their season came to an end. And Cates was one of the really few bright spots, um, yeah. like legitimately few bright spots at the, the end of the season uh, for, uh, you know, for the flyers. Um, I, I question what his offensive upside is. And I say, this is a big Noah Cates fan. I I liked him in college. I I was promoting him as a prospect for years. And I think he's going to be a really good NHL player. Like he's going to be a guy that teams really want to have, but I don't know. I don't know if his offensive upside is going to be enough that makes you want to draft him. Um, he just strikes me as, you know, a really versatile bottom sixer who maybe could be a second line wing on the right second line. Uh, but I don't see a guy who I, I don't I don't look at this as, you know, OK, this is him showing he can be a scorer at the NHL level. Like, I think he might top out as like a 35, 40 point guy. And that to me is a heck of an outcome for a fifth round pick. But mm-hmm. I'm not expecting Noah Cates to become a first liner. He doesn't necessarily have the the dynamic ability. He's just a really smart player. He's kind of like, you know, he, you know, he reminds me a little bit of Michael Roffle, not as fast and he's probably a bit more skilled than Roffle, but like I think he could play the same kind of role or maybe he can play with more talented players. Problem is that the Flyers are kind of lacking really talented players. Like Michael Roffle, they could stick him with Claude Drew and Jake Voracek. Well, no of either of those guys anymore. So, can't do that. Um, but Kate's, I really like, I think, I think Kate's is going to drive play. I think Kate's is going to be a smart player who's going to chip in with more offense than maybe people anticipate to come out of college. But I don't know if he's, you know, really projects as a real score. Now, as for Wade Allison, who you brought up, I mean, I think he has a lot of scoring potential. He just has to stay healthy and he was hurt like all of last year. So, uh, okay. You know, that's the thing with him. You know, he came into camp and he was really exciting. You know, people are, you know, this guy could make the team. This guy could be a be a power play weapon, a net front guy, you know, a slot weapon, something like that. And then he got hurt in what essentially was one of like the pre-preseason games. He hurt his ankle really bad. He had a high ankle sprain and knocked him out for a while. Finally got back from that. Then he got hurt again. Then he got called up. And then he got hurt in his first game. It's call up. Like it was just, it was just a Murphy's law season. And some of it is bad luck without a doubt. You know, I still think he has goal scoring potential. Like I've compared him um, a couple times that he reminds me a lot of Scott Hartnell. And I do think that plausibly like in a best case scenario, you would have that kind of upside as a player, you know, just a real, like a wrecking ball kind of winger 
you know, power forward type. The problem is, is that he plays that way and he keeps getting hurt. So you're like, the tough part about his development is you don't want to ask him to change the way he plays too much because it's what makes him effective, but it also might be what keeps getting him injured. So like at some point, either he's got to just get better luck with injuries or he's got to adjust his style so he doesn't get hurt as much. And then the question is, if he adjusts his style, is he going to be as effective as he was when he played the style that got him hurt all the time? So that's where you fall with Wade Allison. But I mean, he's in the mix for next year, without a doubt. He can make the team out of camp. He's good enough. He's certainly good enough. It's just a matter of whether he can stay healthy long enough to, to be relevant in fantasy hockey. Oh, okay. So yeah, so definitely someone, especially if your league counts hits, it sounds like you want to keep your eye on Wade Allison, see what he'll do. And yeah, there's still a couple other prospects. That's the thing, like Philly isn't as much of a dumpster fire as maybe their record showed. Like we've talked about some interesting players and I still have a couple others that I'm curious to get your takes on. Uh, there's the 2020, 23rd overall pick Tyson Forrester, who we talked about last year. You were saying how like skating was his main issue and the, hopefully that's something he'll improve. So I'm definitely interested to hear what your updated take on Tyson Forrester is. And then we've got the uh, third fourth pick from 2019 bobby brink who had a huge season with the university of denver last year 57 points in 41 games then he got a shot with philly where he picked up uh, four assists in 10 games so uh, i know we're running a little low on time here but can you give us a quick uh, scouting report on forrester and bobby brink at this point yeah well forrester was another guy who fell victim to the philly injury curse um oh man <laughs> you know he had a shoulder injury that knocked him out for most of the most of the year and I still like the talent. I still like his, you know, upside as a potential, you know, scoring winger, particularly could be impactful on the power play, but he missed nearly a full year of development. The Flyers just, you know, the, not, not to absolve the Flyers because they've made numerous mistakes in terms of team building and whatnot, but they also just seem cursed. Like everybody got hurt last year. And I'm talking prospects like Forrester got hurt. Zade Wisdom got hurt. They had so many guys that like they were, were legitimately excited about going into last year and like they all got injured. It was rough. Forrester is one of those guys. So Forrester, I mean, he's not, I don't think he's going to make a team out of camp, but he'll be in the mix, um, you know, for a call up if he excels in the AHL, which he already played well in the AHL, the, the pandemic year. So, you know, he could move quick if he, he replicates, you know, what he did or, or takes a step forward. Um, what he did in a, in 2020, 2021, uh, as for Brink, I think Brink needs some AHL time. Now he obviously got signed out of Denver, um, and uh, and got time in the NHL at the end of the season because why not give him a shot? He has a lot of like I, I like him. I think he has power play potential, especially as like a playmaker, you know, from the half wall. And I really like his on ice attitude. I think you know he's he's a battler. He even though he's small, he's willing to get into the fight, and I like that a lot. Um, I just think he needs some time to develop, you know, get a little stronger, make decisions a little quicker because he's not the best skater in the world. So he's going to need to, to figure out a way to overcome that. And I think he has the hockey IQ that he can, and he can still be a useful, you know, top nine forward somewhere in that top nine. I don't think he's a first liner, but it could be a second liner, could be a third liner. Um, but I think he needs some AHL time. So I'm not expecting him to make the team out of camp, but I like him. I, I like Bobby Brink. I think he's he's one of the more exciting prospects in their system. Obviously, he, he led all college hockey in points last year, so he's not lacking for talent. Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, I'm really curious to see what this Flyers team will look like if they can have a full healthy season, right? Like, I hope they don't blow things up too much just because I'd be curious to see, which I feel like is something I also was saying last year uh, and it didn't happen. Uh, of course, let's end in net here where poor Carter Hart, like, uh, he bounced back. Like, we, we talked about his disastrous 2020-21 season. Uh, it was better this past year. He didn't have a great record. He had a 905 save percentage up from, like, the 877 or whatever it was the year before. My sense reading yours and, like, other tweets throughout the year, though, is it's fair to, like, call him poor Carter Hart and to feel bad for him. Someone who, like, is probably not having that much fun to start his career. Like, you know, maybe he's seeing other guys like Shostyorkin or Sorokin. I don't know. These guys on, like, different teams and, like, seeing all the success they're having like but i'm just curious to get the 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 official updated take like what did you think about Hart's season and like for his save percentage to improve next year how much of it is like carter hart has to get better versus he should just keep doing what he's doing and hope for more help from his team i think it's probably more the latter than the former um i I thought Hart had a good year his numbers tanked a bit near the end of the season. He had a couple, a couple poor starts, a couple of starts where he got hung out to dry and then he got hurt. He never really had the chance to improve them. He spent most of the year above nine ten. And my general viewpoint is if you're on a bad team and you're above nine ten, you're doing a pretty darn good job. So I do think that the, uh, his his final end of season numbers are a little bit deceptive because it may it honestly may have just been that it finally got to him at the end of the year, how bad this team was. And he finally just allowed it to bleed into his game a little bit because most of the year he was one of their, if not their best all around players. So Carter to me this past year, like he showed me a lot and I know the numbers don't necessarily show up, but I thought, especially coming after the season before when, you know, he let, let's not sugarcoat. He fell apart. He fell apart, not just from a, from a, you know, technique standpoint, but from a mental standpoint. I mean, he's been open about the fact that he really, really struggled with the challenge of the pandemic in in 2020, 2021. Um, This year he faced, another really bad team that was underachieving and was kind of a mess. And I think he did a significantly better job of handling that, you know, mentally and handling that in terms of not letting his game slip. So I came away pretty impressed with Carter Hart. Obviously it would have been nice to see the numbers be a little bit better and they were for most of the year, but I come away. What I'll say about Hart is that I have come away from these last two seasons, you know, after the 2020 playoff run in the bubble, when he outplayed Carey Price against against Montreal, played well against the Islanders, I think he finished with like over it was in the 920s of a, his first his first taste of NHL playoff action in terms of save percentage. And I came out of that thinking like this guy's going to be one of the best goalies in hockey, maybe not the best, but he's going to be like a top five guy. Now, I, I mean, I, I have to as a you know as someone who who accounts for data and and obviously uses that as a a major aspect of my player evaluation, I have to take a step back and say, you know, maybe he's not going to be as good as I thought he was going to be. And he still could be, I'm not ruling that out, but I have to reevaluate, you know, my viewpoint of him as a, as a goalie. And now I kind of look at him as I think he's just going to be probably, if I had to guess a good starting goalie, the problem is, is that if you're on a bad team, even a good starting goalie can look bad. So that's kind of where he's at at the moment. And the Flyers have to get better so they're not constantly hanging him out to dry like they have the last two seasons. But I'm I'm confident that Hart is a good goalie. Whether he's going to be the great goalie he looked like he might be a couple of years ago, I'm not so convinced about that anymore. But I'm also not ruling it out. I think he's he's got a lot of things going for him. And I thought this season, while the numbers might not show it, was a really important season for Carter Hart and one where he played pretty well. 
Yeah, I'm seeing actually, yeah, I'm looking at the splits. He had an 894 save percentage in the final 13 games. So if you take yeah. those out, I'm sure that bounces his number above 910, like you said. Uh, yeah, I'd just be so curious to see what he could do on like an average team. <laughs> like and see how he would produce. Well, and we've then, already seen him on an average team and he was pretty darn good. So Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just for like a, a longer stretch. Uh, yeah, it's just too bad. Like it's, it's like, yeah, it's fair. Like obviously we can't just call him like one of the top goalies in the league at the moment. Like we thought he might be, but also maybe, maybe he still has it in him. He's still young, which is cool. Uh, then I guess as far as the backup position goes, uh, Martin Jones also like wasn't so bad. I expected Martin Jones to be like really bad uh, after those last couple seasons in San Jose. He ended up, I mean, not amazing like 900 save percentage uh uh, not too many really bad starts at least Uh, he's a ufa though so do you think that the plan is to bring like jones back i know they have this prospect uh, ivan fedotov who uh signed a one-year deal last month and he had like a 919 save percentage in 26 khl games with cska moscow last year so is it like fedotov and hart next year or do you think they're going to go sign somebody it could be I'm not ruling that possibility out. And the, the thing with Fedotov is that not only was he good, he's been good in the KHL for years. He was a seventh round pick of the Flyers years ago. They just kind of parked him over there. But he was very impressive in the Olympics. And then he was even more impressive in the KHL playoffs, where he basically led his team to, to the championship. I think he finished with like over like a 930 save percentage in the KHL playoffs. So he's coming in with a lot of momentum. I don't think he would have signed especially because he could only sign a one-year deal based on the entry-level contract rules of the collective bargaining agreement. I don't think he would have signed a one-year deal to come over if he didn't think he had a legitimate chance of earning an NHL job. I mean, and he probably knows that there's a chance he might not win it. He might have to start in the AHL, but you don't come over on a one-year deal after being a darn good KHL goalie, unless you think you have a real shot of being the backup. And I think he'll have a real shot of winning the job. Now, whether the Flyers go out and they sign another veteran backup to a cheap deal to give him competition in the NHL, that's very possible. Now, is that going to be Martin Jones? I would assume Martin Jones would probably warrant a larger contract than the Flyers would probably be willing to give just to provide Fedotov competition. But I've been surprised before. I don't think they disliked what they saw from Martin Jones. And Martin Jones does have the connection with Kim Dillabaugh um, you know, obviously they work together in LA. Um, Jones did seem to improve a bit this year as compared to his last couple of years in San Jose. Um, because I'll add in like the tax of playing in front of the Flyers. Like if you have a 900 save percentage with the Flyers, right. you probably were like on a good team. You're like somewhere in like the 906 to 908 range at least. Um, so I think he did improve this year with Dillaball. That said, the Flyers are going to be hiring a new coaching staff, so there's no guarantee that Kim Dillaball is going to still be the goalie coach when they hire a new coach. So there's a lot of uncertainty in that front. And I do think Fedotov will be in the mix. So if I had to guess, if I had a handicap, I would say that Jones doesn't come back just because it doesn't seem to fit with the idea of Fedotov competing for, for time and the flyers cap situation as well. You know, this would be a way for them to save some money by going cheap on the backup with a guy like Fedotov, but you never know the, the, the flyers have surprised me before from a, from a roster standpoint. So, uh-huh. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. They need to bring in like someone, but they don't want to spend a lot of money on a backup because hopefully like Fedotov can take the job, like you said. Yeah. All right. Well, Charlie, this has been so fun. The time has, has flown by. Um, <laughs> I guess one last question before I let you go. Philly is going to come in to this draft with the fifth overall pick. Uh, hopefully they won't 2017 it up and and make some good use of this pick. Do you, ha- do you have any hopes or, or dreams of, of where you think they should go with this pick? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, my, my dream pick for the flyers was Logan Cooley. I do not think Logan Cooley is going to last the fifth overall pick. Um, if by some, you know, 
stroke of heaven, he ends up getting the fifth overall pick. I think he'd be perfect for the Flyers because they desperately need, you know, a, a dynamic forward to add to their mix, uh, particularly one who can potentially play center. So to me, Logan Cooley would be the dream pick for the Flyers. But again, I don't think he slips out of the top three. Um, the way it's shaping up, you know, with the the way the tiers seem to be setting up in terms of scouting consensus, it does seem like the the, the two right-handed shooting defensemen, um, Nemec and uh, and, and Jiracek are probably the guys that would, you know, kind of like whoever's left at five might be the guy they take. The Flyers certainly could use right-handed shooting defensemen. They have Ronnie Adert. He's really their only viable right-handed shooting defenseman prospect in the system. And I think he probably tops out as like a four- you know, on the depth chart at best, um, the yellow situation we've, we've hashed and rehashed wrist and is what he is, um, which in my mind is a third pair defenseman that has been presented as far more than that for the entirety of his career. Um, so getting one of those top, you know, top right-handed shooting defensemen does make sense from a need standpoint. And also they seem like they are the, you know, consensus best player available, whatever that means. Um, one guy who I, I could see the Flyers potentially falling in love with is Cutter Gauthier because um, he seems like he has a lot of helium right now. A lot of scouts seem to think he could be a center. He's big, and that's going to, I think, really appeal to the older school guys in the Flyers organization who have been granted more and more of a voice over the last couple of years, like Bob Clark and Paul Holmgren. Um, if they're convinced that he can be a center, Certainly, you could use high-quality centers in their pipeline, so he could be a fit. I like Matthew Savoy. I question whether the Flyers will like him um, just because he's more of like an offense guy, not the best two-way, at least not in not in Winnipeg in the WHL. Maybe he could develop it, um, but I just he just doesn't strike me as the type of prospect the Flyers scouts tend to really, really like. Um, but you never know. I mean, I'd be fine with it because again, I think the flyers desperately need dynamic talent. Um, but to me, the logical, the, the logical pick would be one of the two right-handed shooting defensemen that makes the most sense to me based on where they sit in the draft order. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. And we talked a lot about how they could definitely use another defenseman, especially if, like you said, Ellis doesn't end up turning out to be what we hope he could be. All right. Well, Charlie, yeah, this has been so fun. Like I said, uh, obviously, everyone listening knows full well by now that you are the best source out there for everything Philadelphia Flyers. You want to tell people how they can keep up with all your great work? Sure. Um, obviously, I write for uh, for The Athletics. So if you don't have a subscription and you liked what you heard, if you could subscribe through one of my articles, that would be fantastic. I'd love to get the credit for it. Um, also, obviously, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is charlieo underscore con. Uh, and then I am on the BSH radio podcast on a weekly basis uh, on our flagship show where we talk everything flyers and then occasionally other things league wide. So those are the main places you can find me. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks again for coming on. By the way, speaking of your articles on The Athletic, for any people who are really into prospects and are being like, why didn't you ask about Isaac Radcliffe or Hayden Hodgson? I don't know. Like, uh, You have a fun article about like just rank because they, they had like a million rookies last year. Like so many players got to their, their start last year with all the injuries. So you had a good article like sort of ranking and, and discussing all the different players who got a shot. So that and many more great articles over at The Athletic. Uh, so yeah, thanks again for coming on. Be careful out there in Philly. Seems like it might be like a bit of a cursed city. So I hope you'll be at least able to avoid injury next season, along with all of the players on the Flyers. And hopefully we can see what this team could do at 100% help. Yeah, hopefully. It would be uh, be nice to see what this team would be capable of doing with 
you know, a stabilized coaching situation and, and full health, but we'll see if they actually can figure out those things out. So, yeah. Well, thanks so much again. And uh, yeah, have a great off season and looking forward to talking to you for round four in a year from now. Sounds good. Thanks for having me.